Welcome to the Compliance Expert Radio Show, your source for the latest information on corporate governance, internal audit, stocks and risk management services. With in-depth interviews, discussions and insights from leading experts. Hosted by Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum. This is the Compliance Expert Radio Show. And now, here is your host, Sonia Luna. My goodness, it is so good to be back. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum. I'm coming to you back from a lovely vacation. Aviva Spectrum is an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm also a speaker and writer on topics like financial close transformation, COSO ERM, SOX 404, and, re- and auditing-related topics. My guest today, I'm super excited about this because it's something that is huge, Huge in the audit industry. My guest today is Lena Roselli. If you haven't heard of her, well, you are now. Lena is a senior manager of research over at Financial Executives Research Foundation, which is the arm okay, of FEI, right? huge for CFOs. We'll be discussing the four-year audit fee trends and how compliance and regulatory issues have impacted how much organizations are still spending on audit fees. We're going to delve into what can be done today to minimize costs. Prior to joining Financial Executives Research Foundation, Lena held technical accounting research positions in the pharmaceutical, insurance, and retail industries, and she's offered, authored over a whopping 30 reports, which just have been mentioned. I don't know, some of these publications you might have heard of, Wall Street Journal, Accounting Today, Compliance Week, and a whole boatload of other business publications. Lena holds a Master's of Business Administration degree from St. Peter's University. Welcome, Lena. Hi, Sonia. Thank you. Thank you for that warm welcome and having me on the show today. We're just super excited because this is a kickoff of a great year. Um, I know the stock markets don't don't give us the the picture. <laughs> We're not starting off with a year that great, but. I'm excited about this interview because it's near and dear to the heart of compliance and finding the best approach to optimize just regulatory costs, which just seems to be like every year. It keeps increasing year over year. So, Lena, in in your perspective, in today's competitive public company market, what are you seeing? What have you seen as a growing trend in audit fees, especially over the, like, the last four years? Right. Good question, Sonia. Well, I'm going to start off by giving you a little bit of the de- giving the audience a little bit of background. So for the past 80 years, Financial Executives International, or FEI, has been connecting financial level, senior financial level executives who are our members and serving their needs and interests. This mission includes providing practical information on compliance and, of course, how to keep these compliance costs down. Now, remember back, um, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 called for major regulations that shifted the way companies did business and how auditors audited, of course. In response, FBI's research affiliate, Financial Executives Research Foundation, or FERF, um, began analyzing these compliance costs. But then, unfortunately, over time, SOX audit costs were embedded into companies' overall audit fees. 
So FERF switched gears a, a little and, and replaced its annual Sarbanes-Oxley Section 404 Compliance Cost Survey to an audit fee survey. So to answer your question, fast forward to the past four years, the survey results revealed that audit fees are constantly increasing. From 2011 to 2013, audit fees average increase range from 4.4% to 6% for companies. Again, it depends on filing size. We normally capture these by non-accelerated, accelerated, and large accelerated filers. Um, and for private companies, it has ranged from 3% to 7%. As for 2014, which is our most recent report, the audit fee increased on an average of 10% from prior year, with a median uh, increase of 3.1%. Now, this year we did something a little different. To make the report a little bit more valuable for our members and others, we analyzed all reported audit fees of over 7,000 public companies using a tool called MyLogix IQ um, and, to calc and calculated the median increase to be at 3.4%. You know, of course, having all this public information of over 7,000-plus SEC filers, it allowed us to take a deeper dive, and we were surprised to find that over 40% of these filers were able, were able to maintain their audit fees or reduce them from prior years. Analyzing this information a little bit further, we found that approximately 15% were able to decrease this fee for more than one year. Of course, you know, yeah, of course, you know, some of the reasons why the decrease uh, could have happened was business divestitures, but this led the FERF into a different study, which I'll reveal the results a little later on in the show. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing that, that um, partnering up or adding that extra value with um, MyLogic IQ um, into the mix to, to go into deeper uh, analysis, right? What I also found in some of the highlights of, the, of this particular research is back in 2011, there were 8,156 companies looked at, okay? And then these are public companies. And then in 2014, we have 7,071. Now, Great. to someone who's – I'm on the committee for the, the SEC's uh, Advisory Committee for Small and Emerging Companies. I find that a little alarming because it just – it tells me the public company markets really aren't um, – it, it's becoming uh, just stat either stagnant or, more importantly, decreasing, which is, is – if you look at the health of the – overall U.S. economy, we don't want that to happen. We actually absolutely do not want that to happen, we, and we also don't want to have uh, happen huge spikes of, of increases in publicly traded companies either, right? But the swing, you can start seeing it from 2011 of 8,156 to 7,071 in 2014 in the study. To me, it's an indirect sign that there's something going on in, in, in the macro picture of things of public companies. But I wanted to get into some of the drivers that we were talking about. Um, you know, you spoke about certain percentage points about people actually maintaining their audit fees, and then even some, I believe, 14% that had actually found a way to decrease, and some of that could have been, been you know, just getting rid of stuff that they shouldn't be in business with, right? Like if, if they had, like, four different revenue lines and they decided to get rid of one of them. But what do you think are some of the other drivers of, of, of these, um, you know, audit fees and these costs? 
Right. And as you mentioned, what we do in these surveys year after year is we give a menu, if you will, of potential drivers that might increase costs. And as you said, some are inflation, just inflation will kick up these costs, or acquisitions. But in the past two years, and which is really significant um, in the space right now, is these PCOB inspections. Um, perhaps maybe a few, a, a few months before the release of the PCOB staff practice alert number 11, um, which is considerations for audits on of internal controls over financial reporting, we found that the biggest pain, <laughs> if you will, was an increase due to PCOB, other PCOB issues, and review of manual re controls resulting from PCOB inspections. So that was the biggest reason in 2013. And we also saw this continue for 2014, even though it had subsided just a tiny bit, but it, it was still a major issue. Um, these inspections also have made both companies and their auditors take a closer look at their internal controls, their documentation, and evidence surrounding these controls. Yeah, these drivers uh, that you mentioned, and, and I'll speak to the PCOB a little bit because it affects some of our clients as well, that Audit Alert 11 really came up with a new audit term, which is level of precision. Management's level of precision for their judgment calls, right? And when we were back in, uh, you know, uh, back in my university days studying um, auditing, you know, theory, and et cetera, it was just judgment, right? It, it was just judgment, and, and we kind of went through the textbooks. But now in, in terms of day-to-day -day practice and auditing and, and this driver of the PCB, this Audit 11 uh, audit alert, it's asking for a lot of detail. For example, um, if it's allowance for AR, right, um, is there a dollar threshold? If so, um, what happens when it changes? Who authorizes those changes? What, what else do you have as a key indicator besides just your own dollar threshold, threshold that you take into consideration? For example, are there other uh, industry trends? Are you also looking at geographical markets? Like, for example, if you have sales outside of the U.S., um, you know, parts of Europe or, you know, God forbid, let's say it's <laughs> Russia or Greece, um, you're looking at that. Well, what comes into play to that? What kind of key reports are you using for your ARR analysis? How many of those? Are you testing those key reports? What's the input and output? Who's authorizing them? How do you know they don't get changed before you close them? All of those things, when we walk through our clients, we actually did some webinars and case studies with our clients and said, look, this is what's coming down the pipeline. So um, I was actually, since the alert came out in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, I was expecting 2012 to be the biggest impact, but I think it takes a year for the PCOB to start doing inspections and go, uh-uh. Hey, this is the year. I told you in 2012. <laughs> so but it makes sense because it's almost like an IRS audit. I hate to say it because the big four firms, which in the study, 86% of the of these folks in the study were from you know big four auditors, and then and then on top of it, what was more shocking was 20.6 of the participants had ineffective internal controls over financial reporting. So it, it just had me kind of th scratching my head. I'm like, well, wait a minute. So the audit fees are going up. We're supposed to do a better job on internal controls. And and you're ratcheting up the you know the external auditors to focus in on, but yet we're still ineffective by twenty percent. You follow? Like, 
I, I would have I would have right. correlated it with a smaller percentage, something less than ten percent, or you know, what's my expectation? But twenty just seems a, a kind of a bit high. It just seems a, a little. I don't know, out of, out of alignment, if you will. So maybe 2015, we're going to have to wait and see an interview again on, on what some of the results are. But how do – so we talked about those drivers in PCOB, but, I mean, how do updated accounting rules impact audit fees? Oh, absolutely, they'll impact the audit fees. Um, as much as we want to say no, they won't. But um, as a matter of fact, in our 2014 uh, audit fee report, we did see some people respond to to saying that revenue recognition are, has already caused an uptick. So so that's coming down the pike, which is major. And another major standard uh, we believe will have an impact is leasing, which the FASB expects to have out sometime this month. So it's going to be a double whammy. Um, and, you know, the thing is we've heard so much, and going back to that level of precision that you mentioned before, Sonia, that that the more the standard has judgment, the more there's potential for not having appropriate audit, uh, uh, sorry, internal controls over those judgments to make sure you evidence it, make sure you have support for any number you have. Just just telling that full story, maybe stuff are already done right now, but they're not documented. Perhaps companies should consider documenting um, their procedures or their transaction controls uh, just to make sure that they have uh, uh, thought of everything that their auditors will think of. Um, another interesting uh, thing that has also come up besides accounting regulation has been an uptick because of the 2013 COSO framework. Um, even though many members have told us that, you know, if your internal controls were good before, they should be good now, but there has been an uptick in, in audit fees because of the new framework. Um, and also other SEC requirements were mentioned as well. So it's, it's not only accounting, it's other regulatory issues that are coming down the pike. And I know that the SEC might be a little bit more active this year with their SX and SK, some changes um, that are coming down uh, within those two areas. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how all of these play out and affect the audit fees um, for companies. Yeah, and it, just to, to kind of also consider cybersecurity-related disclosures are now effective by the SEC. For example, you have to really think about your your cybersecurity risk issues, okay? And and to say no business has no no cybersecurity risk, that's just a false statement, okay? Because hackers uh want data and uh to assume that your data isn't valuable to them is is not the right approach. Number one, number, number two, the SEC still has to give out better guidance because they put out that you have to put some type of disclosure, but to your point, um I I I see not only uh, other disclosures like uh, some of the filing disclosures you mentioned, but also some of these other key disclosures that are impacting the marketplace in general, right, at, at a macro level. Um, you know, the first folks we think of is, you know, healthcare data, um, insurance-related data, uh, and then also credit card-related data. But what, what's happening is, yeah, so that's the, the top tier, right? So, But then there's also another layer below that, and um, I really think that it's not only just these accounting rules, but some of the SEC disclosures, and I do think that cybersecurity is going to be a bigger, bigger impact year over year, not to mention um, 
in terms of the audit committee, the SEC put out uh, more guidance about what the audit committee needs to be doing about the audit-related review. Okay, so it just kind of puts into question the audit committee needs to be more involved in actually looking at the team, the high-risk areas, the changes to those risk areas. And um, I, I think that that push from the SEC to the audit committee is actually going to not decrease audit fees for sure. I, I think, if anything, it's either going to stabilize the, the audit fee uh, where the dollars are being spent, but more importantly, it actually could make it go up because the audit committee is now tasked with doing a deeper dive in terms of those risk changes, the audit team, changes in the um, uh, materiality, if you will, and as well as uh, changing in the operations and how it impacts the audit, which is something I found interesting late last year, how all that came into to being in that, and we'll see how it comes into the new year. But let's talk about a little bit about some solutions here. What, what can CEOs sure. and CFOs do to um, minimize some of these compliance costs, in particular audit fees? Do you have any suggestions? Sure. You know, and, and you kind of hit the nail on the head here. You know, it, it's not about the, the fee might not decrease, but you might be able to mitigate increasing audit fees. So the offset will help, you know, not driving it up significantly. So again, going back to what we mentioned um, in our opening question, 40% of companies were able to keep their audit fees flat or even lucky enough to decrease them. Um, we we reached out to several of those companies and were able to see what they're what they've done to change their process rather than just hearing that they've sold off a division and their audit fees got cheaper that way. But uh, we tried not to hone in on those types of companies, and we honed in on companies that really had helpful practices to share with their peers. Um, some of the areas uh, that we found that they mentioned were some companies reviewed current audit processes to identify areas for improvement. A company that a CFO that I spoke with, he said, we literally take an interview, uh, sorry, uh, uh, an inventory of what our auditors are working on in hopes that we could see what they're doing to make it more efficient for them. For example, he gave me an example of running a sales report. The auditors weren't running the sales report as efficiently as the company could do it, so they provided the auditors with a different solution, and it saved so much time. So so just basically re-looking at what the auditors are looking at to say, how can we make that quicker? How can we make it more efficient for you? Another and I like key- that. Yeah, I like that tactic you share. I want to hear another one, but but that tactic, revenue recognition is so key. So, you know, hour for hour, if I can get auditors comfortable with my revenue recognition and I find out it takes them, you know, a, a huge amount of hours, that was a key strategic move on his part because you know, you know it's not going to go away. That's an audit area that's always going to be a high priority, high risk. Right. But right. do you have any other solutions that you noticed? Of course. Um, improve internal controls. Um, like we mentioned before, it's all about documentation of internal controls, preferably from the start to the finish, including evidencing. Um, and what I hear over and over again is that companies already do this. You know, companies already go through the process of uh, they already have a control in place, but it's not formally documented. So auditors have to come in, um, make sure that it's being done, write it, document it themselves. And this, as you can imagine, takes so much time for auditors. So a key here is 
make sure you're documenting everything. Make sure um, all your key controls are in place and there's evidence around that. Um, you know, and then another thing that was suggested was that a company put a template together of, of, of documentation that an auditor would require. And they asked for their auditor's buy-off before they started implementing it. So not only what, was it only a standard template that they could use for many key controls, it was already approved by their auditors. So, you know, it made that process more efficient to say, this is what we're looking for. This is what we'll be happy with. So the auditors just took that template, if you will, and inserted it straight into their working papers and were very satisfied with that. So um, that was that was another key area where there was an improvement. Yeah, learning what the auditors would want as a template as audit evidence to a key audit area. That sounds, you know, it sounds so logical, but from day to day and you're so busy, you know, working on forecasts or guidance or, you know, staffing issues, you know, you forget those little gems of like, why don't I just come up with a template that we can repeat over and over again on on these areas that the auditors are going to get happy with. And more importantly, let's make them buy off on it. Okay, because if there's changes, I don't want to start them now and then have to regroup with my team and redo it all over again. Um, And and that sounds so practical, too. Um, And you might even be able to negotiate with your external auditors that maybe not every audit area, but maybe some of the high-risk areas or the high-volume transaction areas um, or areas of judgment, you know, that that lack, you know, the traditional um, evidence, maybe maybe collaborating on a better template with them. Uh, again, it sounds very intuitive, but sometimes uh, I'm glad you mentioned it. Sometimes hearing it, you know, from, from a researcher such as yourself, it, it makes even more sense and it hits, hits the messaging, uh, you know, hits at home. Right, absolutely. Um, that leads into my next one, which was planning and being prepared for the audit. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, planning and being prepared because, I mean, what I think the last statistic I heard about emails, an average uh, CFO gets over 100 emails a day. <laughs> so let's talk about planning and, and uh, budgeting, or what, what have you seen in, in some of the responses from your CFOs? Right. So just being prepared again, um, you know, we had an example that uh, the the actual client, we also spoke with auditors, but the client wasn't prepared. So they had to reshift the entire audit staff that they had um, originally um provided for that particular client, and they reshifted them with new auditors that that weren't too familiar with that organization. So again, going back to what you were saying, it is all commonsensical, but it, it matters at the end. It, if people are sitting idle or they're not too familiar with the with the company it is a loss of it is a loss of money for, for or or an increase in in audit fees so again being prepared planning making sure that you and your auditor are constantly on the same page there's there's nowhere where where anybody's going off the road that you've planned so uh CFO also suggested that he had weekly if not biweekly discussions with with the audit partner to ensure that everything is on track. Um, along those lines, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say on the planning side, that weekly and biweekly is, is actually a very good frequency to, to be doing uh, with auditors because um, you don't want to wait until, you know, their their last day of field work for a whole month that they've had people in there about the status of things. So picking a good frequency, um, and we typically see weekly or biweekly, 
um, sometimes daily if it's like a remote location and you're only there for that week, obviously. But then you pick pick what what's going to be part of that daily update because it can't be everything because then you're going to be stuck in meeting meetings, you know, hell. Uh, you know, just talking over the same request list over and over again. So, we, you know, we've actually crafted some ideas with our clients and saying, look, we're here at this remote site. We're only going to be here for, you know, a couple of weeks, but we can have every other day or daily reports, but we're only going to talk on these daily reports. Here's what we're going to talk about. And then the second week, this is what we're going to talk about just to make sure before we leave, we've gotten everything that we needed. But coming up with a, a, a like you said, a, a very sensible frequency and, and what you're going to, what's the outcome of that, discussion with the management team goes a long way uh, for both parties. And the number one complaint from uh, clients about auditors is the number one complaint is they don't understand my business. Mm -hmm. And that's code for two things. Either the auditors weren't prepared, right, and they came in asking what what a client would perceive as an inappropriate or or just uneducated, you know, question, or – um, there were changes to the business that, you know, the auditors were just not aware of because the last thing they came around was, you know, they only did quarterly reviews and they only asked for significant changes, but then they didn't really get into the details and they weren't really paying attention too much and asking the, the, the in-depth questions and, and not really being um, honed in on, on their clients. But the number one complaint clients about auditors is they don't understand the business and having that dialogue before you show up in the field work, first day in the field work, I think is very, very critical. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Any other tips? Sure, automation. Systems today are so advanced and allow companies and their audit firms to share information on a real-time basis in some cases. In one instance, a company adopted a SOX tool that allowed all documentation, uh, meaning flowcharts, Word documents, Excel, to be housed in a particular area and to be organized and accessible by their auditors. Another another benefit of automation is most tools today have elaborate dashboards, um, so people that haven't performed what they should have performed can't hide anymore, so they know where the bottlenecks are occurring within within the audit, uh, so so that's not the holdup. Another thing that I've heard, uh, and also we audit, we uh, interviewed auditors, and they're also driving towards automation as well, which will also be helpful from a data analytics perspective. They'll do audits quicker and more succinct. They could take a bigger population and kind of stream it down quicker. So there's a lot of advancements in automation that will help with um, audit costs um, and getting the audit done more efficiently and effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I noticed that dashboards are becoming very popular with audit committee members. Um, they want to know just you know it's we've we've done dashboards where it's just a whole you know big picture numbers, pie charts, et cetera. But an automated tool that allows the audit committee chair in particular just where are we? You know, without having to really need to pick up the phone, they can get a summary. A lot of the tools are adding a lot of uh, what's called view features where you don't pay that additional license if it's it's only somebody who's going to view something, right? So the audit committee can just view it, and it makes sense. And I do think that automation is kind of the way to go in terms of those uh, workflows as well. So um, we're starting to see a mega trend of, uh, a lot of different software products that are in the cloud that have a built-in, uh, you create the, the, the built-in workflow. So if, if you are waiting for something for me, as soon as I'm done with it, the system kicks you an email 
and it tells you, Sonia's done with this. It's now your turn to do this X item, uh, which I think is great. And it also, in those dashboards, it's summarizing, well, who's really the backlog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes some of these controllers and CFOs, international, um, they have an international location doing some consolidation just, you know, for, for let's say a region like Europe or something like that or Asia. And we've noticed that they're constantly, because not only there's a time zone, there, there there's some, some differences, right, in time, but it's also just sometimes language-related issues. Um, getting them, doing that setup is the most painful setup possible in that workflow, okay? But, but once it's done, magic happens because the folks in Hong Kong and the folks in Germany, what have you, kind of feel like, okay, we, we already went through some training, we went through the setup, and now we kind of know what this is, and now we know how the workflow goes. Therefore, next quarter, <laughs> this is going to run pretty darn seamless, right? We're going to know who within your team, not just the department head, but who within your team probably is the bottleneck. So it, it's not about a gotcha. It's about what account that's usually the issue. What account is taking so long to reconcile, or what's what's causing the, the bottleneck? Um, and it just starts a, a, a good dialogue in terms of um, how the corporate office can actually help uh, develop best practices, uh, which some CFOs know, but they just kind of feel like, well, I, I don't know how much overtime these guys are working over in Germany or, or Hong Kong. I, I have no idea. But once they start seeing this dashboard, of what's going on and how many hours it actually does take and these dependencies and the bottleneck, then the aha moment happens. Uh, so not only to automate, but actually you, from automation, you can actually improve your closed process and, uh, as well as minimizing some of those audit fees. Um, Absolutely. Oh. And, uh, sorry, and the final, sorry, the final uh, point that I have here is review the audit hours and fees um, with your auditors, and don't be afraid to push back. You know, it, it seems like, and going back to what you were saying, now things are more transparent. The amount of time that has spent is more transparent, and uh, you know, it seems like auditors want to want their companies to work with them. They don't want to take the burden. They want the companies to to be more efficient, to be more effective, so they could be more efficient and more effective. Uh, so, so the big takeaway here is that auditors are willing to work with companies to decrease these fees, even though the perception is they're not. Um, so, again, like if you, if you try to employ certain of these of these tactics, hopefully companies will be in a good place to negotiate with their auditors. Yeah, and, and um, I call it positive pushback when you have a worksheet and you say revenue recognition takes you how many hours to audit. Let's just big picture. Where are the top two areas it takes you the longest amount of time or the most amount of time? How much can I provide you to minimize your own hours? And you have what's called a management's you know, audit area responsibilities, Okay, and you talk through it because so, sometimes the past is the past, right? Because they've already spent the hours, et cetera. But if you come in with a hit list, I think personally, I think the audit partner likes that idea uh, for a couple of reasons. It, it's not about them not making as much money; it's actually being more effective with their time. And if you're willing to commit and, and add resources, like, okay, well, great, so my staff doesn't have to work on this. It can actually work on something a little bit more valuable, like the new accounting treatments, et cetera, something that is more um, – something that, that the management team can't really focus their energy on because the, the audit team has to be independent, right? 
Um, right. Another thing is talking to your peers, being part of a peer network. For example, FEI is a great. If you're not a member, you've got to be a member. Um, and, and, and going to some of these uh, networking events that they have and asking them, like, well, how, you know, it, it's, it, these peers, it's all, uh, for publicly traded companies, it's all public information, the audit fees. But what's not public is how many hours it took. Right, and so there's a concept of blended rate where you just take fees, you know, divided by the hours. You say, okay, the entire team, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, okay, of the audit team, their hourly rate, okay, everybody's was an average of 225. And if you're with the big four, you can kind of go with somebody in your peers if you're part of the member of FBI and going to, you know, these events and ask him like, what's what's your average rate per hour that you're paying, you know? And and it's going to change depending on the complexity of your industry, of course, but at least you have some kind of um, – some metric at least to have a conversation with your peers about what is it – how they're leveraging uh, uh, auditors and their audit fees and the hours and what they're doing to maybe some, decrease some of these costs. Now, I wanted to move into – your story, okay? Um, everybody's got a great uh, uh, career story, and, and and you know I find it fascinating. You're in research because I just, uh, I, first off, I gravitate towards data. I love data. I've always liked uh, uh, data data sets and books that deal with data and you know trending and then you know trying to you know kind of almost like an engineer's mind. You're kind of taking it apart. Like how does that number really tick? But can you share? with us about, you know, um, how your career evolved, you know, to our listeners. Can you share with us some of your story? Sure. Um, It all started when I got my first toy abacus at the age of six, really, and I wanted to be an accountant ever since. So I started my career in financial reporting, and it's expanded to technical accounting, where I supported critical accounting issues for companies. Um, Coming over to the Research Foundation, I wanted to build that technical knowledge um, from more of a business perspective as well. Um, Being a part of this foundation foundation is very rewarding and exciting. Um, And as you said, we have the opportunity to discuss cutting-edge topics and talk with thought leaders on a day-to-day basis. Our members are very intelligent. Like we said before, they're made up of senior-level financial executives, CFOs, CEOs, um, and there's not one day that passes that I don't learn a new perspective of business or an accounting issue or or even a unique way to solve issues like compliance. So um, it has been very rewarding for me so far. Um, and I also want to offer, if you don't mind, Sonia, um, an opportunity for the audience to, to get a copy of this upcoming report um, by reaching out to me at Roselli. that's L-R-O-S-E-L-L-I, at financialexecutives, with an S on the end, dot org, or you could visit our website at www.firf.org forward slash reports. Excellent. Now, I think a lot of our listeners are um, going to take down this report. I think uh, informing them of, of some of the mega trends and just even some of the comparative data items that we were just discussing uh, and I'm glad that you're you're um, kind enough to to allow our listeners to contact you if there's any further questions or some other items that they wanted to uh, discuss. Well, I, I gained a lot out of this interview, um, and I know our listeners are very enlightened with this interview, uh, Lena. 
And I'm confident that um, we can definitely have you a guest uh, again next year. We would love to hear from you and see what what other mega trends are happening and get your your perspective. I know that our listeners are also going to really kind of understand kind of how to be a lean forward executive when it comes to optimizing and maybe cross your fingers reducing some of those audit fees. So thank you, Lena, for coming on our radio show. Thank you, Sonia. It's been my pleasure. Well, this is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off.